This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Laura Johnston. Remember Laura Johnston? It's been a long time since you heard her voice. She's back on the podcast. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura, as well as Courtney Astolfi and Lisa Garvin. Lisa's up first. Ohio parents received a reprieve from having to deal with complicated rules involving social media for their children. Lisa, who did provide that reprieve and how long will it last? Yeah, federal judge Algernon Marbley issued a temporary restraining order that halts enforcement of the Social Media Parental Notification Act until they can hold a hearing on February 7th. So in his ruling, he says that the law favors some free speech but disfavors others. So he's in agreement with the plaintiffs, essentially, who sued. Uh, The plaintiff is NetChoice, which is an internet trade association that represents Meta and, and other large social media platforms. They said that the law is unconstitutionally vague and in violation of free speech protections. So the way they say it violates free speech protections is because it's based on content. It doesn't apply to all child-focused websites, Example, for example, like CNN or large established news sites, and Marbley called that an eyebrow-raising exception. And he also said the law doesn't specify which social media platforms would be affected only those that target kids. And he said that that was troublingly vague. I I got all sorts of problems with the way they did this law. I I understand the motive, but I do think this law is problematic beyond, beyond comprehension, in part for all of those reasons. I also think the enforcement of it is very, very challenging. And how do you uniformly enforce that? And like we talked last time when we mentioned this, can't, uh, you know, can't a smart kid get around it anyway? So I, I, I don't, I don't know if this is the answer. Would an education campaign with parents who are in charge of their children be the more effective way of reining in the bad content that their kids might see? This seems clunky and unworkable. Very. Yeah, I mean, because the law states that parents have to consent via fax, phone, email, or Zoom to their child's social media access, and adults who, you know, are the guardians or the parents have to issue a government ID to say, yeah, I'm the real parent and this is my real kid. Now, imagine if you had three or four kids. You're going to have to sign three or four consent forms, I would think. By fax. I mean, it's, yeah, every parent has yeah, a fax, fax machine in their in their house. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think this law is going to stand up. I think they're going to have trouble with it. I, I hadn't considered the First Amendment part of it, but that's legitimate, too. You can't discriminate against different sites. We have wondered in the states where they've got similar kind of laws how is it is working. We're going to have to go 
look at it because I'm, I'm dying to know how is that coming about and are kids getting around it? Um, there's a better way. It's probably educating parents more about what the threats are to their kids online. There's no doubt about it that social media can be really, really harmful to children. The motive is right. The method seems wrong. Well, can I just jump in here? I know we talked to Layla about this last week, and I did listen to the podcast when I was in Holland. I was like running past, you know, an old castle listening to your voices. Um, but I, I, you know, we talked about her reigning in social media on her kids. My son's 13. He doesn't have social media because any app he downloads, I have to give permission for through my Apple account. So I agree that the way that it's all good to regulate this, but that does seem unwieldy and I, I don't know that the government, you know, there are a lot of questions raised by it. Look, Mike, Mike DeWine's veto of the transgender bill was because he knows the parents are responsible for the children. He gave a very, very sincere talk about that. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. It's the parents who are supposed to be watching out and taking care of their children. Why not help them in a way that is not so unwieldy and clunky? Uh, we'll have to see where it goes. If it gets thrown out, you know, the state will appeal it because they have to, because it's a law. But if it ultimately is trashed, as it sounds like it might be, what's the next step to help Ohio's children? Because they do need some help. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is this just being done out of spite or is there a legitimate reason for it? Why is the recently neutered Ohio Board of Education getting booted from its downtown Columbus office? And why do board members say that decision poorly serves us? It may Laura. be a little bit of both here because the gutted, basically, uh, State Board of Education wants to be in Capitol Square. They want to be interacting with other government uh, entities. They want to be available for legislative hearings. They want to be is part of the the bustle of the square. But they lost most of their authority last year when the governor signed it in the budget, creating this new governmental branch. And uh, they didn't even get it from the governor or the board that oversees government offices. It came from the new superintendent of public instruction, Paul Kraft. He said that they have to leave their plum spot on the corner of Front and Broad Streets downtown, move to the boonies in the Ohio Department of Agriculture campus in Reynoldsburg. That's 16 miles away. This decision is not final. There's all sorts of litigation going back and forth over taking away the state board's power. But it does seem like there is space available in that office building they're currently in. So I'm not sure the rush to get rid of them, especially when they say they want to collaborate with the new department because they're all there to do the same function, to oversee public education in this state. I'll say it. This is venal. This is a <laughs> punishing decision. Look, here's the problem. In the 1950s, because of all the meddling by politicians and education, voters changed the Constitution to create the Board mm -hmm. of Education. It's to follow laws as adopted by the legislature. But the voters said, we want the Board of Education to determine educational policy. Get your little political games out of it. They're, they're going against that with this law, which will, will be litigated. And, you know, this law could get thrown out. But to kick them out of the downtown building at the same time when there's no shortage of space, there's right. no reason to do that. They do need to be downtown. That's where everybody who's focused on education is. This just seems mean. I don't disagree with you. And 
And the way that they told them to having the new public instructor superintendent say, hey, you're getting kicked out. And then they're going, well, it's not really final. Why don't they have a meeting and say, here's what we're thinking. We want to use this campus. But they don't have that many people. The new Department of Education and Workforce has around 600 employees. The State Board of Education has 70. It's much smaller. You think they could make some desk space for them and they could all work together. I I hope that the judge considering the lawsuit considers that they're doing this because I think it shows state of mind of what's going on. Uh, This runs counter to what the voters wanted. The voters want Mm -hmm. the Board of Education to be actively involved in educational policy. And these guys, the gerrymandered legislature, the megalomaniacs in power are going against the voters here and taking control on their own. And I think this is just evidence of their venal, venal state of mind. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston came to Cleveland together on Tuesday bearing a big gift. Courtney, how much is it? What will it pay for? We also have some other information about this from the national government. Yeah. So yesterday we were kind of in the room at at Midtown at at the nonprofit Digital Seas headquarters on Euclid Avenue. And like you said, DeWine and Houston came to town bearing $10 million for Cleveland. This is a state grant that's going to go towards Cleveland's plans to to get affordable, high-speed internet across the, the whole city. And Cleveland's partnered with Digital C to roll this out. And this grant's going to go towards Digital C's efforts. And I found it really interesting to learn that they're starting their build out this month. And Digital C is promising to have this in the hands, potentially, of all the Clevelanders who want it. By mid-2025, this is a very quick rollout, and the state money, you know, is is meant to help get it across the finish line. And, and you know, when, when I heard from Mike DeWine yesterday, you know, he and Houston were both talking about kind of their administration's focus on making sure Ohioans are connected to the Internet. You can't really live in today's world without it, they emphasized. School, work, doctor, business, you, you need to be connected. And, and they see this as an expansion of, you know, their efforts. I thought it was interesting. Houston talked about how, you know, there has been attention on Appalachia, Ohio, in, in in the past few years to make sure that they're connected down there. But, you know, he said the difference here in Cleveland, Cleveland, to a large degree, it's an, it's an affordability problem. We can get the technology here. We just need the money for the infrastructure to get it up and moving. And that's what they were really touting as the state investment this will get it off the ground and and bring connectivity to a lot of Cleveland. So the money going to digital C does raise questions for me. We've done stories questioning the history and viability of digital C city council originally was asking some pretty serious questions about their ability to do this before ultimately awarding them money. Here's another 10 million going to them and they have no proven track record. There have been legitimate questions about whether they can do it. So let me ask you, you cover city hall, has city council built in any kind of auditing function where they're monitoring this month to month, week to week to make sure that this money just doesn't dissolve away without coming to fruition with the projects? Council says they've built in huge safeguards here. You know, in their in their mind, I, I really think this wouldn't have passed council had they not amended the agreement in such a way that they were comfortable 
with, with, with the city's money going to this, like you said, large, largely untested nonprofit. And the, this deal that they arrived at last year was that the money wouldn't go, the city's money wouldn't go to Digital C up front. Digital C has to come back and hit specific goals every year to get their city money. So th- that that eased city council's concerns. And that's why this ultimately got over the finish line. We're going to see if Digital C is able to hit these lofty goals. I mean, I think the first round is they have to sign up 3,500 customers. Over the whole length of the project, four or five years, they have to enroll 23,000 customers. And they've got to do, they've got to hit certain benchmarks for providing digital literacy training over the course of those years as well. So city council feels they don't get the money up front only when they've proven they can deliver. So is this $10 million going through City Council, or is it going directly to Digital C? My understanding is that this was a Digital C award. I, I, I've got to get a little bit more information, wow. perhaps, where where things are moving from. This money came originally from the Ohio Department of Development. It's Broadband Ohio office. Um, but, yeah, I've got... You'd hope. You'd hope the state would put in the same kind of auditing function that you're describing with the City Council. It's a lot of money, and like we said, it's a very unproven agency with some questionable questionable stuff in the background. Uh, there was also news on the federal front to get some more money to cities like Cleveland. What was that? Yeah, this broadband issue is really, you know, everyone's kind of looking at it, both parties, all levels of government. And, you know, in, in D.C., the bipartisan infrastructure law provided free or discounted internet access to over 22 million people. And that program started in 2021, but that money is ready to run out. And Biden is looking for another $6 billion to continue that program. So DC is trying to do what it can do to offset people's bills. And we know this, we know this program has been important to Ohioans. The The White House says over a million Ohio households are enrolled in the program. That's one fifth of our state. And and when you're looking closer to home in Cuyahoga County, just look at the 11th congressional district that includes most of the county. And 45% of households in the 11th district are participating in the program, according to the White House. And our congressional district here, it has the highest participation rate in Ohio. So this clearly matters to Northeast Ohioans. Yeah. So if it matters to the cities and it matters to non-white people, we can expect a, a press release any day from J.D. Vance condemning Biden for seeking this money, given his record of press releases over the past couple of months. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, we have more news about a transgender candidate for office who was kicked off the ballot for not listing a previous name, even though there's no place to do that on a candidate form. What's next for this? The courts? Well, yeah, the Stark, the Stark County Board of Elections voted 4-0 to zero this week to reject the appeal of transgender legislative candidate Vanessa Joy, who was disqualified by the board for not listing her dead name on her candidate paperwork. Joy, in her appeal, said that she recognizes and agrees with the spirit of the law, but she said she didn't know about it until she was disqualified. And as we've talked about before, it's not mentioned in the 33-page candidate guide. 
the Board of Election staffers also seemed unaware of the law, which has been around in its current version, at least since 1995. But here's the rub. There are four other, three other transgender candidates running for office in Ohio. Very, that's a big number for Ohio. Uh, there's uh, Bobby Arnold in Preble County, Ari Faber in Athens, and Arian Childry in Oglaze County, who we've talked about before. All of them had their petitions certified by their county boards of election. But of course, Childry's, as we've reported, was challenged by the Mercer County Republican Party chair. There's a January 18th scheduled hearing scheduled for that. Mercer County Democrats say that challenge is invalid because Ohio law states that protests against candidates must be filed by the same party as the candidate. We've said it. This is preposterous what's happening here. There's nothing that ever says to the candidate you have to do this and to bounce them off the ballot. It's just a disgrace. I'm hoping that even Frank LaRose, despite all of his weird antics over the past couple of years, will see this and and set it straight. That That, yes, maybe in the future they can have that line on the form and enforce it, but it's not enforceable because there's no way for a candidate to know about it. I imagine a judge will see the common sense of this if this is appealed to the courts. Well, and it's interesting that the other candidates had their certified, although one was challenged, but still. So these other counties didn't see an issue. Because you can't. It's not right. I mean, it's wrong for every reason we've discussed. And I, I really believe this candidate will end up on the ballot. You're listening to Titanium Ohio. Remember the University Hospital's embryo case? where the hospital system's failure to ensure its equipment was working resulted in a huge number of people losing their dreams of having families. The guy who directed the lab is now suing his lawyer. And because this is Laura's first day back, I gave her the most complicated story to tell on this episode of the podcast. (laughs) Laura, take it away. At least it's not a brand new story. It's something that's been going on for years. So it's not like I had to educate myself from the top, but this latest iteration is that Andrew Botnager, who worked in the lab, said in his lawsuit that his lawyer, Sabod Chandra, overcharged him. They charged him for hours that Chandra worked to defend himself against a contempt of court charge. Now, that stemmed from the same lawsuit when the judge said that Chandra violated a court order and published confidential information in the court filing. So Botnager was originally represented by the same lawyer as the hospital that the would-be parents sued. He wanted his own attorney because we're talking about a whole lot of money here. And this case is about a whole lot of money. So he accused the Chandra of charging him excessive fees and interest in more than $175,000 in unpaid legal bills. That, I mean, so this is not chump change. The, the, the outrage, if it's true, is that this guy's being billed for the hours that Sabod Chandra put into defending himself from mm-hmm. an allegation of misconduct. That's not the that's not the client's bill. If Sabod right. Chandra <clears throat> is accused by the judge of doing something he's not supposed to do and has to defend himself, those hours are on Chandra. I he's right. he's not really responding the, to the specifics. So we don't know what his response is to that. Right. He says he's going to countersue. Chandra says he's going to countersue to get the money that he's owed. But you're right. So this was a 20, 2018 issue when a freezer containing embryos and eggs at the Beachwood Clinic malfunctioned. Um, this is a, an independent contractor we're talking about. He ran the clinic, Botnager did, and the embryos were destroyed. So these families who had all their hopes and dreams absolutely demolished, 
sued. And what happened in the case is that in April 2021, Chandra filed this motion on Botnaker's behalf, asserted the hospital staff and administrators were responsible for the malfunction. This was on the public docket, and it accused Botnaker's former attorneys of misconduct. But the attorney said that Chandra included several emails and documents that inc- contained attorney-client privilege material and other things that needed to be shielded from the public. So that's where that contempt of, char- of con- court charge comes from. So it was in relation to the case. But you're right. It's not like Botnager was the one who published that information and then got charged with it. That's a Sabode thing. Yeah, I, if that's true, I don't. That's kind of unconscionable. He was billing them for it. We'll have to see how it plays out. This case just has the longest legs. We're still talking about it. This was one of the biggest failures of public trust I've ever seen from a hospital system. I mean, it just destroyed so lives. Sad, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, we're talking about the the litigation and the administrative stuff, but it is a really sad story at heart. Yeah, because they didn't have a backup system. I mean, you got a backup right. system for everything, and you don't have a backup system for future babies. It's just amazing to me. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked Monday about Mayor Justin Bibb's bold plans to pay for all of his waterfront visions. City Council received the proposal this week, and we waited to talk about the reaction until we had Courtney on the podcast because she wrote the story. Courtney, I know there's a long way to go before we get to the end, but what was the immediate council reaction? Yeah, so to remind folks, we're talking about Bibb's proposed TIF district, tax increment financing. It would capture all the increased property values on downtown buildings and buildings in part of Ohio City and send all that money into city infrastructure spending to try and stoke development and create what Bibb hopes is a spiral of growth for the whole city and region. At the same time, that money won't be going to things like health and human services and parks. So that's kind of the big debate here about you know, potentially $3.3 billion to $7.5 billion over the next four decades. So this is a lot of money. And council knows that. So on Monday, when everyone got together to kind of kick off the year and and chat at at a committee meeting, you know, what we heard from Blaine Griffin is basically that council isn't going to be rushing this decision through. Bib, you know, when he rolled out this information said, He could look to start bonding against this money as early as the second quarter of 2024. I'm kind of skeptical if that'll happen, especially if council's going to take its time vetting this and putting it through the committee process. One thing that I thought was interesting that that Council President Griffin had said was that, you know, he's willing to bring in outside experts here, you know, pay for outside experts to really help council understand the ramifications of this how it would impact the city, what this would actually mean. And that means they wouldn't necessarily have to rely on Bibbs people to sell, you know, sell their point of view on it. They, they want potentially outside information and perspective here. And, and, I, and I also thought it was interesting, you know, one of the committee chairs that's going to play a big role in this process is Councilman Anthony Hairston, chair of council's development committee. And he, he really told me council is not looking to rush this through. He described this as very serious business uh, relating to Cleveland's future. And he said this could very well take months for, for council to vet through. And Ugh. and Griffin said he's already hearing concerns about it. So I think we've got a cautious city council on this one. Well, there is a lot to discuss about it because this is going to deprive county agencies that serve a lot of Clevelanders of taxes. I'm glad I liked what I heard about how they're going to give this 
a thorough review, but I have a fear because I covered city council and I've watched them over the years. Whenever they see a big pot of money like this, they try to get slush funds out of it. And if that's where this ends up, where council carves out you know, 100 million of this or 50 million of this to give each of them money to play with in their wards, that's a disaster and it shouldn't happen. So I'm hoping that they do this in good faith for the good of the projects and don't look at it as a selfish cash grab the way we've seen their county counterparts in the past couple of years do with the ARPA dollars. Lisa, you were groaning. Well, I mean, this, I personally think this is a really bold vision and Cleveland needs a bold vision to move forward. How many decades have we talked about waterfront access and it's never, ever happened. So, and Justin Bibb, the mayor's going to come and talk to the editorial board, you know, in the next week or so to talk about his plan. And, you know, we'll be peppering him with questions, but, you know, and they want to take months and drag their feet. Oh, we got to take months to look this over. It's like, Really? Do you? Well, I do think they need to vet it. This is a a radical change in approach, and it does have decades of ramifications. So I and really, I think the public should be heard from on this. They ought to have plenty of opportunity for the people of Cleveland to speak up. It affects people in the suburbs. It'd be nice if they could speak, too, even though they have no say in this. Um, but I, I'm glad they're doing it. I just, because I've watched council all these years, I'm very suspicious about their motives that this is really about, you know, they're going to say, we need to protect the neighborhoods. Give me mine. And whenever they go down that road, they squander the money. Nothing good comes of it. And, and, you know, you talk about Lisa, the long-term history of Cleveland. That's one of the reasons it's more abundant is because of that kind of small minded thinking. You know, I- Exactly. You know, I think it is worth noting. I don't know what form it'll come in, Chris, to your point, if it'll be, you know, just ward specific dollars that council members can control. But I do think it is worth, you know, council. Bib here is talking about kind of some of the trade off that, that he do with the money. He, he's saying that that some of these proceeds could be directed to implementing a, a parks and rec kind of master plan you know, really juicing up parks and recreation centers in the city is kind of his exchange to the neighborhoods in exchange for getting all this money for downtown. And I'm really curious if council's going to be satisfied with billions of dollars being diverted, diverted away from its normal sources here. I'm wondering if council's going to be satisfied with just doing parks and rec in the city as like the consulate, not that's a bad way to phrase it, but as, as what the neighborhoods would get out of this deal. Which is fine, right? If they want to think about how this can benefit everybody, but, but they, you can't lose sight of the idea. This is trying to turn Cleveland into this dynamic downtown that people want to come to. And finally, after centuries, take advantage of both waterfronts. And if they get in the way of that, you know, look, we talked about it. Dan Gilbert has great vision. He's proven it in Detroit. He's trying to do that here. Working with him is in the best interest of the region. I just wish we were a countywide city because I think you'd have a much more thoughtful discussion. More to come. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Speaking of the waterfront, Lisa, the Metro Parks bought another key piece of land along the Cuyahoga River, guaranteeing more public access. Which piece of land is it? How does it fit into the grand vision? 
Yeah, Cleveland Metro Parks acquired 3.3 acres of riverfront property on the Columbus Road Peninsula for $3.5 million. They bought it from Graincraft, which is a former flour mill, and that deal closed just after Christmas. They also have a contract to buy 1.2 acres next to that Graincraft property. That's uh, The seller is Marlin Investment Group, and the price is uh, $4 million, and that will close in May. Um, the Metro Parks says this is a once-in-a- generation chance to secure public access along the river and it will help achieve their goal of a continuous trail on or near the riverbank from Settlers Landing near West Superior south around the tip of the Columbus Road Peninsula and then back north to Collision Bend. And it will also connect to those 35 acres on the east bank behind Tower City that's owned by Bedrock, where Dan Gilbert is going to do his thing. And this will help flesh out parks and public areas along the east bank of the Cuyahoga. The Metro Parks just continues to be the shining beacon of good government in our region. They, they just keep taking good steps aimed at fortifying this region. you got to love what they're doing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're running out of time. We're going to have to do one more. We got an update on the case of the stolen Kia belonging to our crime reporter, Molly Walsh. We talked previously about the irony of a reporter who writes stories about stolen Kias falling victim to the trend. Courtney, what's the update? Yeah, Molly got her car back. Well, kind of what's left of it. It was in rough shape. Mm. Um, So her car was stolen December 30th from the road in Ohio City, and it turned up a few days later in the North Broadway neighborhood. The steering column was all ripped up. The windshield was shattered. The back window was smashed out. And and she's just navigating the next steps here. She had to go down to the city impound lot and, and check out her vehicle. She said she lost some personal items that were in the car. She she found items that were left there by either the thieves or left there by the thieves, but she didn't know if it belonged to the, the people who stole her car or maybe it was items stolen from another vehicle. It was a library card, for instance. And you know, she also told us about the fees that stacked up. It it took her, I believe, four days to hear from Cleveland police after they recovered it. And she was bothered by that. She wanted to know why they didn't, they didn't call her as soon as her car was found. And she asked the police spokesman and they didn't have an answer for her. And meanwhile, the car was in the impound lot down at Quigley and, and racking up fees down there for sitting in the lot. So next time you talk to city council, tell them to pass an ordinance saying that you can't start charging storage fees until the person who owns the car is notified. How how unfair is that, that you're paying for three days of storage because you didn't know it was there? She would have taken care of it earlier. That's a scam for the city to get more money. They should fix that. Uh, It sounds like I don't think the car is being totaled by the insurance company, but it probably should be. She doesn't want it anymore, I don't believe. And how many thousands would it take to repair it? You know, it's it's tough. She she gives her first person view and she kind of empathizes with with all the folks who have gone through what she has this this summer and this year with this wave of thefts. She did find the library card and another identification card of somebody in there. You kind of hope it's the thief and they're just stupid and left their identifying information so they can be caught, but it might belong to somebody else whose car was stolen. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so she'll keep us abreast of the developments as this goes along. That's it for the Wednesday episode of today in Ohio. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on another episode Thursday. Thursday.